This is Radio West and Doug Fabrizio. Aaron Schimberg is getting a lot of attention with his latest feature film, Chained for Life. Here's the basic plot. A pretentious but famous German director is making a horror film in a semi-abandoned hospital. And he's hired disabled actors to play the parts of the disfigured and disabled patients. Schimberg uses disabled actors to play these roles. It's a film inside of a film. It features a character named Mabel, played by the actor Jess Wexler. She's a young and beautiful actress who creates a bond with a man named Rosenthal, played by the actor Adam Pearson. Pearson has a disorder that's given him a facial deformity. Now, the film has been described as transgressive and bizarre, but it's also deeply honest and smart and really funny at times. Chained for Life is the latest in our film series, our partnership with the Utah Film Center. We're going to be screening the film and talking about it next week. Today, Aaron Schimberg is joining us. And as soon as we began our conversation, he took me off guard. I was asking him, you know, obvious question, had he always wanted to make films? And who are the directors that first inspired him? I don't know if I have a compelling uh, origin story, but... Certainly, it's the only thing I've, I've ever really wanted to do. And I think, uh, if, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's a nece- that's necessary if you, if you really want to do it because it's so hard and in a way, and it, it takes so long that uh, if there's anything else that, that you, you want to be doing... Um, I, I recommend doing something else. But uh, the first film that I fell in love with uh, was uh, it was called Summer School uh, by I think I think it was directed by Carl Reiner, and uh, I saw it thirty times in the theater or something. Wow! I, I mean, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but. Uh, it's the only thing I have by way of a, an origin story. It started me watching movies all the time, and we had a, a poster in our house for Godard's Contempt, <laughs> and I think we had it in there because, like, it was meaningless. It was just like a piece of art with Brigitte Bardot on it. <laughs> but I sort of grew up looking at that, and one day on... AMC or some channel, uh, the movie was playing. <laughs> and so I I watched it just out of curiosity. And I like <laughs> I liked it. Um yeah. <clears throat> I I don't know if that you know, it was different from things that, that I had been seeing, but I don't I don't know that I felt that it was so incomprehensible to me um you, uh, you know you could i could appreciate the artistry behind it to an extent the extent that like a, an 11 year old can but i i think that did open up uh my my curiosity about non-american films and uh more art house films uh as they as they call them and uh, so it's really due to having this uh, 
poster of Brigitte Bardot on my wall or on, uh, in our hallway. Do, do you in any way, I don't want to overthink this, but do you see in any way those being the two kind of conflicting impressions of, of your work in the sense that on one hand it's about art, on the other hand it's just about entertainment? And do you ever see a conflict between those two? And I guess the reason I think that's relevant is because I... I in interviews, I hear you resisting this idea that you're somehow – this film is a piece of activism for a point of view. You want it to just be this really funny, smart film, but people are reading it in these other other kinds of ways. And I'm just wondering if you if you're seeing that. Well, I think that the film is – definitely very personal for me yeah so i think for me making films that are personal is probably my main motivation there may be an activist part of that but i feel like that label is being applied to it because it's dealing with disability for me it's a personal film as to the dichotomy between you know, art, house, and entertainment. I don't know that I I really have ever felt that there's much of a distinction there. You know, I think that usually what I'm, what moves me is something that is per- personal in some way. Um, and that could come from anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I I do think... Uh, my film is meant to be entertaining, but uh, I I really was just trying to make a personal film, whatever that means. Yeah. Well, what does that mean for you? Like, and I wonder. The, I mean, the question of disfigurement has that been featured in the scripts that you've thought about that you in your writing and your work do you do you think about that as a as a theme a lot i guess yeah it's it's definitely i mean i have a a cleft palate and and maybe this is obvious if you could hear him in my voice but uh certainly it's been sort of the overarching theme of most of the work that i've done that's been produced and hasn't been produced it's a mixed blessing because it's not the most commercial uh, theme or subject. Um, I think there's some there's some resistance to marketing a movie like this, and so as I consider what to do next and try to move forward, making other films, this theme is definitely you know um, something I want to keep exploring but there's another part of me that for the first time really is sort of thinking about making something that will be more uh, accepted I guess yeah I mean I get that but when I look at the film the pacing the the the, the way you put it together the, the kind the kind of awareness for a moment that has nothing to do with the sort of you know disability or disfigurement. I mean, you seem to nail that part, so you should feel good about that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't. Uh, I guess that's what I mean by it's not necessarily an, an activist film. I mean, I wasn't thinking in terms of oh, I want to make a film about disability or disfigurement. I really wanted to just make a film that uh, speaks to some some of the way I experience life in some way. Yeah, and uh, so that's a part of of me. And um, it's just, I, I, I never was thinking, you know, this is a film that is about disability. And it's, you know, I, I, it's going to play at disability festivals. And, you know, I, I never thought about that at all. I thought yeah. this is a film uh, that in some ways is critiquing past uh, films about disability because I always feel that that these films, most films about the subject fall short or feel false to me. Yeah, yeah. So if there's any level of activism in the film, it's really that critique. Well, we should talk about Freaks, the movie from 19... I think 32. 32, yeah. 1932, this is Todd Browning's film called Freaks, and it's, you know... For those who know the film, it it's interesting because now it's sort of taken on this – it's seen as this cult masterpiece. But it's – I don't know how to feel about it myself. It's about, you know, sideshow performers, f- freaks as the, as the title implies. Talk a little bit about when you first saw it and how you encountered it and, and what you felt about it. Because it seems like your feelings about freaks are, are pretty conflicted. Yeah, which is how I like to anything I I write about. I I, I usually start with something that I am conflicted about huh. because that's where you can sort of uh, operate in this. I, you know, I'm not trying to advocate my beliefs in a film. I'm trying to sort of work out my feelings about something. For sure. And freaks is uh, an excellent an excellent source for that because. In in many ways, I I like the film a lot. I think it's beautiful in a lot of ways. But uh, there's a part of me that that sort of recoiled from from the film and was skeptical of what the film is really selling. Uh, there's you know it's there's an exploitative component to it. Yeah. And now, of course, it's this sort of cult object. Um, and these are two different ways that people have always sort of um, dealt with disfigurement, you know, recoiling from it and then also elevating it as this uh, countercultural thing. So in some ways, I think it is still the most progressive film about the subject, which is insane. I mean, I saw like Wonder a couple years ago, and to me that movie is far more regressive but uh you know but i'm i'm still skeptical of of the film you know and particularly the ending undermines much of what the film is trying supposedly trying to say um essentially it takes place uh at a circus sideshow and there there's these you know, performers, the freaks, and uh, 
there's these two able-bodied people who uh, try to con one of them out of his money. And uh, basic, basically this able-bodied person, I think her name's Cleopatra, uh, she pretends to fall in love with this, with this guy, Hans. And when they discover that she's just using him, they, they all band together and disfigure her. And that's the ending of the film. And are they saying that disfiguring someone is the worst thing you could do to somebody? It's the worst punishment of all? Or are they liberating her in yeah. some way? Yeah, yeah. Um, that question is one that I ask myself, you know, is, is having a, a cleft palate, is this just some sort of burden that I've had to bear, or has it been, you know, positive in some way? And there's elements of both, I'm sure. But that's, so, you know, again, that kind of open question is, is uh, helped inspire my, my film. It's interesting because the two reactions to freaks um, are both something that you kind of comment comment on, or at least the film gets at these two impressions. On one hand, it's recoiling at horror, and then the other hand, it's trying to create this fetishizing. Basically, you you skewer both of those reactions. I think in your film. Well, part of that is like a reaction. You know, there are pitfalls to making films about disfigurement because they are usually sentimental or they're horror films. Yeah. And then there's also this idea like in Wonder, the movie Wonder, where or Mask or any of these movies where people bully these characters and then you begin to empathize with these disfigured people. But I didn't really want to show any of that. I, I, you know, I had to avoid being sentimental and I, my feelings about disfiguring or not, se- sentimentality wouldn't, wouldn't come into play. I think that's, that's the kind of feeling that somebody who, who has no experience with disfigurement, that's, you know, that's uh, for them to make a movie about. If you show something like bullying, you know, this is always a complicated thing in a, in a movie because you're always identifying with the leading character. So it doesn't really matter who you're showing, whether they're disfigured or not disfigured. If you see this avatar for you, this uh, this figure of identification on screen and people are against this person, you, you start to feel that you have been wronged in some way. And I don't know that I consider that Empathy. I think it's just feeling like personally attacked because you're identifying with uh, with uh, the protagonist of a, of a movie. So I didn't. I, I actually bullying is a part. I think of many people's of disfigured people's lives. But I, and I a part of me wanted to explore that more, but I felt that it would ruin the movie or stack the movie in a certain way, you know, stack people's feelings about um, what they're watching. And so the movie is treading very lightly on 
what anybody in the movie thinks about these disfigured characters so that the viewer can't doesn't really know who to identify with and can sort of confront their own feelings. Aaron Schimberg, he directed the film Chained for Life, which stars Adam Pearson and Jess Wexler. We're going to be screening it at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center next Wednesday night. You can get details on our website or go to utahfilmcenter.org. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Hey, it's Lee Hale, host of the Preach Podcast. On our latest episode, Public Radio's favorite quiz show host. I'm an agnostic, which is what an atheist says if you're afraid God will be mad. I talk with Peter Sagal about how running became a meditative practice that helped him through a family crisis. Plus, he had a lot of questions about my Mormonism. Find Preach wherever you get your podcasts or at preachpod.org. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Aaron Schimberg's new film, Chained for Life, seems to have struck a chord. Right now, it has an audience score of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, and whether you put too much stock in that or not, the film is clearly getting attention. It's a movie inside of a movie. It features actors with physical disabilities. The main actor has a disorder that causes facial deformity. Aaron Schimberg, the filmmaker himself, is disabled, and his film raises big questions about our obsession with beauty in the movies. We're talking with him today. We'll be screening it next week. Aaron will join us for a Q&A. We'll give you more details about that a little later on the program. Was there any part of you, and I, I read somewhere where you had, at first you were thinking, maybe I should set my movie within the movie at a circus sideshow side like, like Freaks? Were you thinking about that in some way at first? Yeah, but that was just a lack of imagination. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I, the original inspiration for the film was because I had been thinking about the movie Freaks. The, the very early idea was to just continue the movie, the yeah. Freaks essentially, I mean, or a Freaks-like movie where we we see what her life is like now that she's been disfigured. Is it a, has it been good for her or has it been terrible for her? And then I added this element of um, this would be the film that they're making in within my film that this is all, that they're making this Freaks-like movie. And I added that element in because there are many stories about uh, disabled and disfigured people on films like uh, The Wizard of Oz, for instance. You know, there's all these, there's all this lore about the Munchkins, and uh, and also on Freaks, there's this lore about, which is true, I think, uh, about how the able-bodied cast wouldn't even eat with the disabled cast because they didn't want to be around them. So. I wanted to bring that element into the movie. What's it like to to work on a movie like that? But because it's set in the modern day, you're not going to see that kind of behavior. That that wouldn't be realistic because it's for one thing that behavior is illegal now. You yeah. know, couldn't get away with that. So, um, so it's sort of a modern version of that. But at a certain point, I moved away from 
the circus thing and set it in a hospital instead because, like, the Mad Scientist movie is another genre where disfigurement looms large. Although it is interesting that the um, the the disabled figures in the movie within the movie don't get to stay at the local hotels. They have to stay at the yeah. on, on set, basically, in the hospital. Yeah, and it's, uh, to be honest, I'm stretching it a little there. It's not, <laughs> it's not completely realistic. Eventually, the film leaves all the able-bodied cast behind, yeah. and, we're, and we're alone with the... With the uh, disabled characters so that was one way to to do that well we'll come back to the the scenes where all of the disabled characters um are making decide to make their own film or 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 do their own thing because that night is kind of the the night that they're all together is kind of magical is it's a series of scenes i think it's really great um but let me back up and just – let's talk about Mabel. She's a complicated character. Yeah, and you know, I didn't want to – she's hard she, – she's very hard to read and that is partially by design because you don't know how she feels about this character, Rosenthal, this disfigured co-star of hers. So I started out thinking if you have a – Disfigurement. I feel like there are certain people that are really bothered by disfigurement. Like they they don't know how to act around it. You know, it's very obvious. Yeah. Like like they just shut down. Some part of them shuts down. And I started the the movie with a character like that, where Mabel was somebody who just like couldn't handle it, and. Then I I moved. I think there's an element of that where she she's maybe she's never experienced it, so it's being built up in her mind, and uh, you know she's never worked this closely with someone like that. And she wants to behave correctly, and she wants to be woke, as they say. And uh, so we never really know what she's thinking. And uh, I said it on in this on this film set because that confuses things even more because she's being she's performative to some extent you yeah. know she, the way that she treats this guy is you know is taking place in this professional environment and and under everybody's she's being scrutinized by everyone around her so she's on good behavior you know and so that complements or complicates things too, and so a lot of the drama rests on, you know, is she, you know, is she afraid of him? Does she get over that? Does she um, fall in love with him? Does she? Do they become close or have some kind of connection? And it's never really clear. Uh, it it may all these things may be true, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. And so, in order to achieve this, Mabel had to be a little bit remote as a character, kind of cold and hard to read, and self a little self absorbed. Yeah. Can I play it, a scene? Yeah. Early on, actually, it's a because it gives us a sense of kind of how she's 
thinking about this or trying to think about this. So a journalist has arrived on set um, to do interviews for this film that that they're making. And the journalist is interviewing Mabel. And in this scene, she raises that question about the disfigured uh, members of of the story being played by by people who have disfigurements like Rosenthal and as she refers to in this moment you know these bold casting choices and hearing Mabel respond to that I think is I have to say it's really funny too um, and it's but it's interesting it shows sort of her conflict here's that moment since we're on the topic there are some bold casting choices in this film I guess do you have any reservations about it? Reservations like how? Um, I don't know. Do you feel, for example, this film might be considered exploitative? You know, I think that's up to the director. Um, it's in the script. Have you read it? No. I think this is something he relates to. He had very serious asthma or something like that as a child. And so I think it's a very personal, like, sad tale. Andy said he grew up in the circus, but I think he exaggerates. <laughs> Playing a blind woman must be challenging. Mm. But that's the job, right? Acting is acting. Like, um, Orson Welles, who's white, can play Othello, who's black, obviously. But then he can also turn around and be um, the other... Iago. Iago, right, if he wanted... Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, such a gifted actor. He can play, he played a hopeless cripple. And then he turned around and played a great American president. So that's a challenge. But blindness, it's also not a totally foreign concept. Because, you know, blindness is an illness, but it's also a metaphor, right? We're all blind in certain ways. We're like blind to our own best interests or blind to the suffering of others. And I think that blind people, um, they feel shut, they feel excluded from, yeah? Um, And I certainly relate to that. I'm sure you do too. (laughs) Uh, We have to underline, and I'm guessing this scene will, that this is a really funny movie. Um, are people missing that for the sort of bigger idea here sometimes? I wonder if that frustrates you. The uh, comedy? I, I yeah. think... I mean, again, I think that's one reason I'm resisting the, the activist label. Yeah. You know, To me, I, I think the movie is uh, a comedy, um, maybe a tragedy as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it was it's certainly intended to be funny, and yet every screening is very different in how people react or relate to it. Some people, so I've had screenings where nobody's ever laughed, and then yeah. other screenings where people never stop laughing. So, you must prefer the part where they're not, they never stop laughing. That De- seems like your intent, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of great figures and funny figures, let's talk about the director figure, um, hair director. Tell me about this particular – like set it up for people um, 
who he is and sort of where he fits in the because I, I want to play another scene from from the film that in, involves him. I mean, he, he's a little bit of a, it's kind of a broad yeah. <laughs> caricature of a director, but it was it started from. I mean, in that last scene, you hear her say, first of all, he has asthma. And that's, kind <laughs> of, that's kind of a Martin Scorsese go because uh, Scorsese is always talking about how he had asthma when he grew up, and that is why he stayed home and watched, all those and watched movies. a lot of movies. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not making fun of him. I mean, I think that that is you know, one of the arguments I'm, I'm proposing in the film that you know, is having some kind of sickness can could come out of that, and so even though it's a sort of flippant remark in the in the scene, um, you know, maybe that is that you know having asthma was the best thing that ever happened to to Martin Scorsese, maybe not. And the other thing she mentions is uh, that he grew up in the circus, and uh, which. They talk about it a lot in the movie, and no one's, no one's clear if it's you know if it's true if it's true. Yeah. And uh, you know, this is the Tom Browning thing. He directed Freaks. You know, there's the, the whole legend is that he grew up in the circus, and that these were his people, and you know, this he really this was a very personal film to him. So he's he was kind of based in a Broadway on on Todd Browning. Yeah. Um, this German director who comes to America and uh, has, uh, you know, this past that everyone is talking about. But everything, you know, the film takes place on a film set and every every person who works on the film is, uh, there's nothing accurate in the, in the film. If you want to learn about how films are made... Don't watch. Don't watch this. uh, Everything is a lie. Everything is just, uh, you know, there for the sake of of these other ideas. So we've talked about the director, and then I want to talk about the character of Rosenthal, played by Adam Pearson. Could you describe Adam Pearson, this actor, and the because it'll give us a sense of um, what this what this is really about. Well, Adam Pearson uh, has neurofibromatosis and uh, essentially has uh, benign tumor, tumorous growths all over his face. Um, it was thought for many years that the elephant man had this condition, although now they, they think that isn't the case. But that gives you uh, some sense of... Um, how he appears, and he's also he was uh, he's most known until now. He's he's, he's most known for uh, his role in Under the Skin, uh, where Scarlett Johansson meets him and they they take off their clothes. And, um, so, and and I was halfway through the script, and I had described him as a a man with neurofibromatosis who has a British accent, uh, not knowing that Adam Pearson, who has a British accent, um, who's British, that is. Um, I, I didn't know he existed. And uh, so wow. it was, you know, I was lucky to go see <laughs> Under the Skin. And I was mm-hmm. lucky that Adam agreed to do it. When you, how did you approach him? 
As soon as I wrote the script, we sent it out to his manager, and uh, he, he, you know, we Skyped, and uh, he was in, so um, he was totally on board. Yeah. Well, let's play this scene. Um, hair director's trying to direct Rosenthal, this Rosenthal character. And we should say Rosenthal feels a lot of anxiety about being able to act. He feels intimidated by kind of by the process, the director, whether he's going to be able to remember his lines. So he's anxious about all of this. Yeah, he's like a non, you know, he's clearly a non-actor who's yeah. been cast for the way he looks right. in, in this film, in the film within a film. And this moment in the film, um, it's great because even though Rosenthal doesn't know a lot about acting, as you say, he's been chosen just because of the way he looks, but he knows enough to know that he, in this scene that he's being directed where he's supposed to step outside of the darkness into the light, that he doesn't really have any real motivation to be standing in the shadows that it's just this kind of superficial way of introducing a character that's supposed to be, you know, either monstrous or pitied. Um, here's, here's another moment from, from the film. Can we try it? Who's there? Don't be frightened. That was better, much better, but you still, you must step you make your reach longer. Uh, the shadow is still... We shall conquer this problem. Maybe we can move the light back. Um, the light is beautiful. If you would just do as I asked and lengthen his step. Mark it. Put a mark down. Rosenthal, step to the tape. But do not look at the tape, you must understand. Who's there? Don't be frightened. Progress. I won't stand too long in the shadows. No, in fact, I was. Is it long enough? How does it appear, Frank? Where's Frank? Why am I standing in the shadows? Because uh, this is your entrance. From where? It's the entire film. This is your introduction as a character. To the audience, to the paying public. So far you have been seen only in shadows. But your face, your identity, is a mystery. And what exactly am I doing? Just, just standing, sta there. standing there. It, it feels unnatural because it is stylized. Maximum effectiveness. I'm just asking to get a, a feel for the whole thing. So you like, are hiding in the shadows because you are afraid because you are in an unfamiliar place and you sense something is not right here. So you are hiding because you smell fear. And then I just walk out? You do not walk out. You step out into the light. It is an introduction. It is an amazing moment because the audience has not seen you yet. You have been withheld. It is like Orson Welles in the Muppet movie. You've seen this movie, no? No. You know these Muppets, you would like them. They are not fully beasts, not fully human. Uh, they are half-breeds, uh, like the great god Anubis. Yeah, I know who the Muppets are. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love how Orson Welles comes up at these great moments in yeah. the film, too. He seems to crop up everywhere. <laughs> I can't explain it either. It's so funny a scene, but it's also so sad in some ways and so kind of tragic. And here is Rosenthal, um, who's having to sort of put up with this because he's a smart he, – he gets it. He absolutely understands the way all of this is – playing out he's great by the way and it's just yes. a great character i have to say thank you yes i mean he uh, to be honest i mean adam is in under the skin but he's in it for uh, a couple of minutes he's very good in it but you know from what i understood it was improvised and i i in this film in my film you know he's a lead actor there's a lot of dialogue and we shot everything and not everything, but most of it in very long takes. Yeah. And uh, I really had no evidence that, uh, you know, he he could act. So I, I didn't know, you know, that, that he could handle a, a lead role. Um, most people can't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got... <laughs> it was just luck because he's he's incredible in it, but and he's a great actor. But, uh, you know, I've... I didn't really know that yeah. going in. So. I have to. I want to ask you a just a style approach to the film because there are these. What we see a lot of are these long shots where you just hold that whole scene. For example, is all we see is Rosenthal's face when he steps into the shadows. Oh, sorry, from the shadows into the light, and and then there's this this great shot where. Rosenthal and Mabel are together screening some of the dailies They're, the director is showing, some of the scenes that they've shot, and we just see them, their faces. We'd talk a little bit about that as a, as a sort of stylistic decision because we see a lot of just these, these kind of, I have to say, beautiful, long shots of people reacting. Yeah, it's just... Uh... I, I, in general, I I don't know how to analyze it. I I I shoot long takes. I like to do that, and I like uh, I like. Uh, it's also uh, a good way. You know, we we have a short shooting schedule, and it's a good way to cover. My scenes are very long, sort of dialogue scenes. So in, in some ways, these long shoot, you know takes is a good way to get through the movie. But uh, it's also my aesthetic preference. But those shots you're talking about, you know, for instance, they're watching the dailies. Um, it, it stays on the two of them as we hear the movie that they're making and they're watching themselves on screen. But we don't see what they're watching, but we hear, you know, this kind of, this kind of cliched dialogue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the purposes behind that scene is is to remove you from these kind of films that you usually see and see the effect that they may have on the people who make them. Um, so we see Rosenthal watching himself um, in this, you know, as this sort of pitiable and frightening figure. And then we see Mabel... Um, what, sitting next to him and maybe realizing, you know, uh, what she's part of. 
and and how this person that she knows um, is is uh, being sort of reduced to this cliche, and also wondering what he must be feeling. And so I think maybe that's the first moment in the film where you sense that maybe she starts to have some empathy uh, for for him. Well, it's a it's a good contrast to another moment earlier in the film that I actually wanted to play, where he is they're they're going for a kind of a, a walk in between takes, and she's he's as, as we said before he's anxious about his acting um, and remembering the lines, and she says, "Sure, I'll, I'll teach you some tricks about about acting," and it's in the course of that this conversation that. Um, She's showing him different facial expressions and he's suggesting these different emotions. But she gets, as you'll hear, caught up on the emotion of, of empathy. Name an emotion. An emotion? Yeah. Just name one, like any emotion. I can't think of one. You can't think of an emotion? Is that the medication too? <laughs> yeah, Maybe. Like, sadness. Okay, sadness. See? Acting. Okay. All right, I got one. Great. Happiness. Mm, opposite of sadness. That's what I hear. I have to remember. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. You're ecstatic. So you think. Okay, okay. Let's try fear. Yeah. I recognize that reaction. Okay. How about empathy? Empathy. That's one, that one's very advanced. Um, a minute ago, you couldn't name any emotion. Yeah, but they're all coming back to me now. So, empathy in three, two, one, action. And looks a lot like pity, but all the same I'm touched. You're really very talented, I must say. <laughs> He's great. And, um, and this is a really good scene early on because it shows... I, I, because I f always feel conflicted as a viewer um, about Mabel whether she gets it or she doesn't. And I'm, I feel off kilter throughout the film because of that. Um, I'm not sure what to make of her. Is she sincere exactly, or isn't yeah. she, you know? Yeah, that, that's... I mean, that's sort of the design of the film. It's, and uh, I want to say something about Jess, who plays her, Jess Weixler, uh, because, you know, because I... I didn't want to give away what she was really thinking. You know, she never says, uh, you know, I learned so much or anything like that. We, we, we really have no idea. And uh, because I'd written her in this way, I was, I was worried that she would be a very cold, um, unrelatable, maybe underwritten character. And Jess is um, such a warm 
presence. I mean, unusually, I think of of all of all the actors, she just has the warmest presence, and she's also very emotive. Um, she, you know, you can see her face constantly going through, you know, as she's thinking about things, and so she she really made the role more complex uh, by, you know, making her very likable and uh, somebody who's obviously struggling to with how to feel about you know everything you know what whether it's with empathy to Rosenthal but also you know the worth of the project that she's on and you know what she where she stands within it where what she should you know if she's complicit in, you know, marginalizing uh, these these people with disabilities. And, you know, you, she does so much of this just with her facial expressions. Yeah. So, um, and so I wrote her a little bit blank, and she, she really fills that in. She, to, to me, it seemed like she's the most relatable character, the ones that everyone could relate to. The, right. that, that idea that where you, I'm, I don't dare say anything here, but that person right there is really disfigured. What am I supposed to do with that? Right. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, she was written as that sort of audience surrogate, but, yeah. I, but because, you know, I also wanted to refrain from um, knowing what she yep. really thinks, which is, you know, again, I think part of, I'm sure everybody you know, can relate to this to some extent, but uh, if you have a disfigurement or something, you know, you never really know to what extent other people are, you know, are are focusing on it or, or judging you by it. You know, whether it's your the closest people in your life or strangers, you know, it's it's sort of this thing. You don't know what people feel, and uh, so I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted that to be a big part of this film, where you really don't know. You know, you want to hope that they're that she's overlooking this thing, that yeah. she's that she, she's she's moving past it, um, and that it doesn't bother her. And you know, by the end of the movie, it, that may be the case, yeah. but it also may not be at all. So <laughs> you, really, yeah. you really don't know. And so yeah. It, and so it forces the audience to sort of deal with their own emotions about it. And in the scene you just played, you know, it's, it, when he's asking her to perform these emotions, uh, sadness, happiness, it's always cutting to her while she performs these, you know, she smiles and acts happy. But when he asks uh, about empathy, yeah. that's the one time that it's on his face and it's really, uh, you know, asking the audience, you know, to, to empathize. Yeah. Um, I so. love that part. So we've we've already talked about how you don't see this as a polemic or a kind of an, a bit of activism. It's just like deeply personal for you. But you've also said that you do kind of hope it's a film that acts as some kind of corrective to all the other kind of bad portrayals in the past. Do you want to say something about that? If I've ever seen a character in a film that I would think, you know, this is me you know this is somebody uh who whether they have a cleft palate specifically or some kind of facial disfigurement or something like that 
if I've ever seen a character like that in a film, uh, I've always felt like, what is this? This is not, I don't understand this. And it's always felt to me like the person making the film is is an outsider to this experience. Like, they just don't know. And it's fine because they're dealing with their own, you know, feelings. But to me, these feelings largely come across as negative or, or patronizing or condescending or worse. And uh, so I, I've always just thought, you know, one thing that's that has driven me is just to speak for myself mm. and the reason I, I resist to call it activism is because I'm not speaking for anybody else I'm not, I'm not speaking for Adam who plays you know Rosenthal yeah. or anybody else I can only speak for myself I think that probably people with disabilities and disfigurements will will see something you know will may appreciate um this point of view, and so far that has been the case. Um, but um, I, I can really only, you know, I, I don't want to call it activism because I'm not saying anything about all people with disabilities or disfigurements. I can't do that. I can't. It's not. It's not meant to speak for this group of, you know, this minority group. It's. It's meant to speak only for. I can only I only have my own experience to, to pull from, so Aaron Schimberg, he's the director of Chained for Life. You can see it next Wednesday night, that's November thirteenth, at the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. You can get details on our website or just go to Utahfilmcenter.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. Our thanks to our intern Natu Twe. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard, by Ali Vallarta, and by Tim Slover. Christy Miners is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.